The moment is brought to you by Monster. Find employees who work as hard as you at monster.com slash hiring. Monster. Find better. And by Amazon. Detective Harry Bosch is back on the new season of Amazon's original series, Bosch, based on the great best-selling novels by Michael Connelly. Stream the new season now on Amazon Prime Video. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's guest is researcher, author, and walking inspiration, Tom Rath. You might know he first became famous, I think, for co-writing and researching StrengthsFinder and StrengthsFinder 2.0, books that uh, I sat there reading and arguing with. Uh, But I did read them and found them completely compelling and and did all the stuff in them. And then his book, uh, Eat, Move, Sleep, and his book, Fully Charged, I just flat out loved. I'm very cautious about Speaking to people in the self-help space, Tom, some of my closest friends are in that world, but I find it's peopled often with individuals who haven't actually made the breakthroughs themselves. But you're somebody who has, clearly, and who has used his own challenges to not just solve problems for himself in solving his own challenges, but but clearly want to solve them for, for the rest of us. And, and it's for that reason that I reached out to you and asked you to come on the show. So thanks for sparing the time while you're here in New York. Thank you very much. I, I sincerely appreciate that. It's true. I, I, I want to start um, by talking about a, a way in which you, you helped me. And I wrote you an email. We don't, we don't know one another, but we had been connected by a mutual friend. And I had heard you talking about this idea of uh, disarming situations with kindness. When other people talk about it, but when you talk about it, you don't talk about it as like a strategy for winning the other person over. You talk about it as a way that the that using kindness actually helps you, helps us to feel like we're living a life that's more connected and with more meaning and actually has a chance to bring us more joy than like winning the interaction. Mm. How did you come to that in your own life? And why is it so hard to deploy it? You know, I think one of the reasons it's hard to keep top of mind and deploy, which is a great question, is because we're racing through things on a day-to-day basis. And to stop and remind ourselves that that little interaction when you're checking out at a store on the corner actually adds up and accumulates and makes a difference, it's hard to bring yourself into that moment and do it. But yet, when scientists have studied this, and a lot of the original work started in merit when a guy named John Gottman was studying couples' interactions in marriages 20 years ago and since moved into the workplace where you can see it among work teams and how it relates to real concrete outcomes. But to greatly oversimplify a lot of that research, what scientists have found is you need to have about 80% of your interactions be a lot more positive than negative just to stay above water because one negative interaction carries such a heavy load or a charge, it knocks you off course for the rest of the day. So you kind of have to steer your way through that. And to your point about doing things for other people, the only thing that's really within our control is how we react or interact to another person. We can't control the charge that they're bringing in our direction for better or worse in most cases. Yeah, I mean, my, my daughter will sometimes say to me, because you know, when, when we take that uh, sort of out of our pockets as a lesson, my daughter will look at me and, and say, you're not about to Victor Frankel me right now, mm-hmm. are you, Dad? Because not everything is the Holocaust, right. and it's sort of unfair to constantly say I should be in charge of managing my state. And 
I think she's she's right because it starts with, like we each have to do it mm-hmm. ourselves. But can can you define a bit what you mean by a negative interaction and then how you can prevent it from for you feeling like a negative interaction in language that's easier to understand than man search from than Frankel's man search for meaning, you know? Right. Yeah, I mean it's I think I even for me, and you you alluded to this a little bit, but I've been battling cancer pretty intensively for 25 years, but that's still not a very good motivator to do many things differently this afternoon. It just it gets right, me quiet. nowhere. So it, what's more practical to me is I was just grabbing a cup of coffee down the street here, and um, I was in a tight little space, and you know, I know I'm, I'm blind in my left eye from cancer, and I know inevitably I'm going to bump into someone, and nine out of ten times it is my fault. Another person has every right to be angry and so on. But what I've learned over the years is that that's kind of a little, I view it as more of a psychological experiment nowadays because the fact that I'm going to bump into someone is inevitable, but I always get to see what their response is like in that instantaneous little moment. And nine out of 10 times, people will be just as effusively apologetic as I am and say, I'm sorry, it won't happen again and act like it was their fault. But one in every 10 times, that person is angry and hostile and they get wound up at me. And I've learned enough over the years, as many times as it's happened, that now I need to step back and say, what's the right response on my part in terms of even if they do get really angry and blame me and yell and they're red in the face, the last thing I want to do or should do for my well-being or my family's well-being later on tonight is to escalate that situation and pile on top of what's already going wrong in that person's day. And so I've learned that in those little interactions with strangers and especially with people we know and care about, we've got to be a little bit more conscious of it. And, of course, you can't do it all the time. And there are times when my wife reminds me that I wrote a book about how full is your bucket in these little interactions. <laughs> and I, I need to stay on top of that every now and then. But to try and keep some little heuristic there is important because the more of the research that I look at, our lives are, to a great degree, the accumulation of these little moments more than they are the big challenges and tests and kind of the Viktor Frankl way that your daughter talks about. Well, yes, but how do you do, like, I guess you're a, a master of the why, not just because of the fact that, yes, you've been battling cancer and solving your own cancer for a long time, but I read your books and as I'm reading them, it's it's crystal clear that if, if I could take uh, the 15 difficult interactions, small interactions, and through my own response to them, disarm them. I'd be happier. And sometimes I can. But how do we train ourselves to allow the pause to occur before we react? And it's the same question Mm -hmm. I I have about eating a slice of pizza that I shouldn't, right? Our will and our mood pushes us so often so that even if I believe, as I do, you're right, executing is very difficult. And you say, even it is for you, but how do you train yourself to do it? What's your process to remember yeah, so that it activates, you know, in the John Wooden way of you do the thing. But how do you do it when life, it's not a game. You're not on a basketball court. You know, one of the things that I've learned from a, a guy that's in a documentary I was just working on, Brian Wansink. This is the Fully Charged fully documentary, charged, right? which is available on iTunes and Amazon. And all people whatever. can see it, and it's right. a uh, came out of your, your book, Fully Charged, right? Uh, which is a great book. And I haven't seen the documentary yet, um, but 
if it's anything like the book, it's really worth people seeing. Yeah, what we tried to do in that documentary is we interviewed all these top social scientists, everything from Nicholas Christakis on these little interactions to Brian Wansink, who's been my hero on, uh, he wrote the book Mindless Eating. And he, we, we go into his house in the documentary and he talks about the way, yes, he still has tortilla chips in his house, but they're in the laundry room on an upper level. So if they were in his kitchen or nearby his living room when he's watching TV at night, he says he'd eat them for breakfast each day. But because they're up in the laundry room with all the detergent stored away, it sets his environment up so that he's less likely to make a bad decision in the moment. And instead of having tortilla chips on the counter, he has apples and nuts and all those those kinds of things that are healthier for you to eat. And I, I bring that up because what I've learned from some of his work is that to a degree, we can do the same thing with our interactions and our patterns throughout the day where there are people, at least in my life, who are like the tortilla chips where you know if you run into them, they're going to stress you out nine out of ten times. Sure. And so if you structure your day where you're interacting with them more frequently, you're more likely to have those moments that are hard to reduce the escalation on per se. So there, I do think there are ways we can, if you get into the way you set up your day, you can wire it for better interactions, you can wire it for more physical energy, and you can wire it for creating more meaning in your life. And what happens to you in the, in the micro moment? So yeah, you can, that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You can plan better if you're aware of that. And it's incredibly valuable to, to anticipate. So yes, if you know that your aunt is going to ask you why your hair looks the way it does and that it's driven you crazy for five years, either only see your aunt after you've gotten a haircut or don't see your aunt. I get that. But the employee or the partner or the boss who does something and you're aggrieved for legitimate reasons, right? Because what you're talking about often is even when you're in the right, not pressing that advantage in, in a way that gives you the momentary satisfaction of aggression, be, because that has a long tail that's a problem, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't make us happier. Right. How do you train yourself to not go off in those moments? How do we? I, I think that's one of the most challenging questions we face, especially in a work context nowadays. Where yeah. it's There are a few things I've learned on it, just little tips and tricks that I've tried out myself. Um, one is that having... The awareness of it does help a little bit. So as we have the ability to track and watch our continuous heart rate throughout the day, for example, with wearables that are less than $100 nowadays, um, that allows you to see when are things getting your heart rate up to a point that's probably not healthy on an ongoing basis. And what happens if you watch this and test it out and instead try taking a few breaths, trying to de-escalate in your mind before anything comes out of your mouth? And, you know, the, the same thing... So literally breath. Literally, literally you're saying... breathing. Literally, literally breathing, breathing like right. as a little thing you can do. Mm-hmm. And, and I and guess considering the, a success, if you, oh, go ahead. Say breathe it. for the sake of your own heart rate, not the other person, not the situation. Oh, not to spare just, them your anger. Right. Just for the sake of, because what, there, it starts a downhill cascade of events for your physiological state that then carries forward to other people you care about. And so that person's doing harm to you, even if you just let them get you wound up in that moment. So to, to try and have some awareness of that and then maybe to create little triggers where I've, I've realized that I'm still guilty most of the time of responding too quickly when I become frustrated and stressed out on email in particular. And, sure. and, and we, all, we all do that. And for some people, it turns into more career-limited emails than we can afford. And to once in a while 
take an hour, ideally take a day, and wait until the next morning to reread your draft before you click send. It's, oh, that's good. Let yourself it, write the email angry. Go ahead and write it angry, but then wait to click send until the next morning and see if it's really the same message. Do you want to take it to that level? Well, yeah, I had heard this is I had heard you say something like this to my buddy uh, James Altucher, and mm-hmm. soon thereafter had. We had, you know, set up the marketing plan for Billion so carefully with the the network. Mm -hmm. And somebody who was tangentially involved, but a sweet person, spoke to the press in a way that was maddening to to me. And I it was right before the Christmas holiday, and I got I was furious because it was – the thing became – for a moment, I was worried represented and now I'm looking back. It's all been fine. But I was worried, right? And I wrote an email that was a little bit – it was controlled, but I, I did express my anger and sent it. And the person immediately wrote back that they were sorry. But they, we were going into the holiday and I started thinking about your work. And I realized that I, I was 100 percent right. The person was 100 percent wrong. But I realized I could do a kind thing, which is write back and say, I'm not going to hold this against you. This is not a market. You made a mistake. Go have a good vacation. You're, you're going to be fine when you come back. And I did that because of you. And then, you know, the person wrote me back saying, oh, I can breathe now. I was totally worried about that. It's so great that you wrote the email. And I was so blindingly angry in the first moment you know, nothing had changed. The guy still had made a giant screw-up. But I felt all better afterwards. And you, th- that probably diffused some stress for you over a longer period of time as well. And that, I think that's where the—I've been working on this just recently in the last few weeks and trying to map it out with a few other writers I've been talking to. And the amount of time we spend stressing out about things that never happened or could have been resolved earlier is creating oh. such a huge debt at a kind of a social level in a lot of circles. And so how how can we help people to minimize that faster you instead mean to of deal with language? deal with stuff the moment you can calmly deal with it because you say Correct. you should wait. Correct. But the moment you because how if you had to The holidays was a great example you just talked about. Perfect example of that where if, if two people are both worried about something over holidays that could have been diffused one day later instead of 3 weeks later potentially it could have been that 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 would have caused problems for multiple, not only multiple people, but that spreads to two, three degrees out. Right. That's what I want to talk about. Because you said earlier, earlier, when I have one of those interactions, then it's not good for my family later. And because I've read your work, I know what you mean. Mm -hmm. But can you talk about how that toxicity, how that toxicity spreads if you don't resolve it, how it does go out? For someone who doesn't know what you're talking about, can you explain that? Yeah. You know, the most interesting story that uh, stems from that the interviews we did for that documentary, there's a guy named uh, Nicholas Christakis at Yale who's, he he and his colleague James Fowler have become pretty famous for their studies uh, through the Framingham Heart Study where they looked at social networks and found that if I gain 10 pounds, that that obesity not only spreads uh, to a direct connection of mine but to a connection of theirs and a connection of that connection all the way out to three degrees. And what I learned in interviewing him for the documentary that's fascinating is this work of his started 20 years ago when he was an intern. Uh, he's, he's an MD, PhD in Chicago on the South Side. And he was going around taking care of the uh, dying and people in hospice care. And when he was leaving this old woman's house one day, he left and he knew the woman's daughter. But he got a call from the 
woman's husband's friend. So it's that, and so he gets this call on his cell phone, and he describes the way the husband's friend said his life was miserable because the husband was always stressed out because the wife was taking it so difficultly about the mother. And so that's when all of these studies, he realized that he'd been researching that widowhood effect, but the widowhood effect wasn't limited to direct connections. It stemmed all the way out to second and third degrees. So and anxiety can spread the same way? Anxiety, well-being, good things can, bad things can, smoking. So you go through all these social phenomenon, the things that we bring in from a standpoint of stress or the things that we start in a good way, if it's better <coughs> dietary habits, exercise, or the like, they have an effect on other people, even if we're not directly talking about it or teaching it, um, because of those social ties that we have with others. All right. We're going to take a quick break and return with more Tom Rath after a word from our sponsor. As a small business owner, you work endless hours to pursue your goals. The sun rises your alarm clock, your lunch hour is eight minutes long. You need employees that work hard too. Monster has 20 years of experience finding the right people for the right jobs. Monster builds custom hiring solutions specific to your small business. Visit monster.com slash hiring for a limited time offer and to find employees who work as hard as you. Monster. Find better. How, how old are your children? Well, my son's about to turn five and my daughter's six. So have you thought about how to help them with was one of the, these habits become ingrained mm-hmm. early. Social dynamics start to play out early. And I find when, when I talk to kids that it's really challenging and to learn that we're, we have the ability to shift the social dynamics. How do you talk about it to, to children? Or how, how do you make them understand how to, how to think about taking, taking action? You know, it, it was kind of fun. My uh, first, let me d- disqualify this with my kids are on day eight of eleven of a, being snowed in from school. So I've had an intensive session with my children for <laughs> right. the last uh, for the last few weeks. But that's that was originally what I learned when I was young, and that really helped me through a lot of my challenges. From my grandfather, he'd always he grew up on a farm in Nebraska, and he talked about the way we all walk around throughout the day with invisible buckets. And every little interaction either fills someone's bucket up a bit or it takes from it. And um, so we've used that metaphor with our kids and talk about, you know, to my daughter, you're dipping from your brother's bucket when you're taking his things or yelling at him or saying negative things to him. And we also talk very openly about how what are things that we value as a family because they create well-being and they create better interactions. So We've been careful not to send our kids to sleep because that sends a message that sleep is a punishment and something you should dread. And the first question I asked my kids this morning when they got up is, did you have a good night's sleep and did you sleep through the night? And we talk about how that's important to have energy for the next day and how they can see those little actions and reactions based on their decisions. And you've learned, your research has told you that the sleep deficit, I know it's tied directly into the obesity, but you think Mm -hmm. it's as as harmful or almost as harmful as the obesity uh, epidemic, right? The lack of sleep that we all get. It's. A, I think sleep is a primary trigger for those events because if you get a good night's sleep, we studied this back when I was at Gallup and asked, we asked thousands of people um, about their moods in the evening and then we called them back the next day and asked them about the day after that. And what we learned is that a good night's sleep is similar to the reset button on a video game or if you just completely reboot your smartphone, where 
you get a clean slate the next day, you're more likely to be active throughout the day. You're more likely to eat the right foods, eat healthy foods all the way into the evening and get a better night's sleep the following night. So that one good night of sleep can create an upward spiral where a night where you have uh, four hours of disrupted sleep can be equivalent to having the intoxication of a six-pack in your system, on the other hand. So it, it really does change the course of a day pretty dramatically based on how well you did the night before. What have you figured out about why intelligence has nothing to do with it? The, the smartest person in the room and the dumbest person in the room might each make the exact same mistake in these areas, right? Mm-hmm. Why is it so difficult for us, do you think, to do what ought to be very simple things, eat well, sleep well, and move around. I mean, your, your books, the last two books, certainly talk a lot about why we need to, and a great way to think about it, uh, which is, is this a net benefit or a net positive? And you give examples that prove that we ought to, but why is it so hard to do? You know, I, I've been wondering recently if it's one of the reasons it's so hard to do is because there's literally so much stuff <laughs> flying at us there in a is. given day. Yeah. That, I mean, it's, it's a really successful day if you can just deflect enough of the stuff coming at you to make it to the end of the day. And I think that is a real challenge, especially when we talk about sleep and when we talk about attention. I mean, just to pay attention to another human being for 15 minutes is a lot harder now than it was 10, 20 years ago, I suspect. And so we need to find ways to say, here are the things that contribute to better days, not only for ourselves, but for the people that we care about. We're, somehow we're actually better at acting on things if we do it for the sake of others that we care about. So uh, a great researcher I've followed for year, for many years, Adam Granite, University of Pennsylvania. He's terrific. Oh, he his, his last, I heard his new book is great. I, haven't, is. I heard Seth Godin told me the new book's spectacular, but the last book is wonderful too. People should read it. We'll put the title in the show notes. It's about the value of... Uh, it's about the value of being uh, good and kind. And it motivates us more. So in, in give and take, he, d- he did these studies where if you put uh, signs on the walls of hospitals that say washing your hands or good hand hygiene prevents you from catching diseases in one group, another group it says good hand hygiene prevents patients from catching diseases. People use 45% more quantity and repetition of hand sanitizers and washing if they think they're doing it for patients instead of just thinking about it through their own lens, right? Yeah, the, the, I just, I will give, uh, let's give a good plug to give and take because right from the beginning, that book talks about medical school students in a way that's fascinating uh, mm-hmm. and that the ones who viewed the medical school as some kind of competition, win-loss, and always were trying to win did well early on, but the ones who were giving and trying to help their fellow students and didn't see it as a competition, by the end of med school were the ones who clearly by every metric thrived the most and and did the best. And he, as you do, he researched the heck out of it so that mm-hmm. it's not conjecture. It's proof. I, his, it's interesting. His work is sort of a cousin to your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's done, you know, he's done amazing work and it. It's really helped me to see on a personal level how you know, even if I have a friend now who's really struggling, where I think my default mode, I have my backgrounds in psychology, is to say, well, let's deconstruct what's wrong and help him to focus on his problems. The right answer is probably, let's help him focus on cheering someone else up, and then we'll worry about that oh, stuff. I love that right? in your books. Yeah, that's so, just quickly taking... I do think that's just a better place to start with the way we orient our effort in a day almost. Yeah, right? I, I, I think that that is, again... Um, I agree with it entirely, and yet 
it's hard to give that advice to somebody without them feeling like you're not listening to them. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's hard if, when someone says to you, I'm feeling really down in the dumps, uh, your, your advice, which I think is right, hey, go volunteer for a day. And you've proven that that works. I'm trying to figure out the way to language this stuff in a way that's useful. Because it seems like people who just function this way, they function this way, and you can study them and prove that they're happier. The people who need it are the people who, who don't function this way naturally. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, back to where you started with that, I'm probably the most jaded person I know when it comes to evaluating self-help. And so the way you put it, it, it was kind of music to my ears about it's the, the people who need it most are not the ones writing it. They're not the ones reading it in many cases. And so how do you bring that around a bit? And I, I, don't know, I, I would start where you were with just genuinely listening and understanding is, is, is such a gift for people today. And it's most people don't. We're racing through. We're putting our phones and computers out that become metaphors for telling people we're not paying attention. And so just to genuinely listen and understand and then start to think through how you can get somebody on their feet with getting them oriented towards helping others. That's, that's a great incremental thing that's in it. one of your books, this idea. Talk about the, just even putting a cell phone on the table. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's, you know, that's one of the things that we were— I loved learning we, this. We studied this in, in depth in the documentary piece, and it's if I sit down at a dinner table with friends or in a meeting in the office— and I take my smartphone out of my pocket and put it on the table, even if the thing is powered off, it's not dinging, it's not vibrating, it's not blinking, that phone has now become a metaphor for the device is more important than the people around the table. And as a result, it statistically degrades the quality of the conversation for everyone sitting around the table because one person chose to put their phone out there and say that that's more important. And so I, I know there are times when phones need to break through for emergencies, but 90% of the time we take them out, those things don't need to break in. And so I've really learned to be conscious of not even having a phone visible when I'm paying attention to my kids or playing with them on the well, floor or in a meeting. How much did your diagnosis at 16, how much does the fact that ever-present for you is, you know, this specter of, of your health, make it um, more clear to you than for most of us what emergencies are and what they aren't, right? Because mm -hmm. I can convince myself that a phone call from an actor is an Very easily, I can very easily convince myself that a call from set is an emergency, mm -hmm. right? So if I'm shooting six months out of the year, that would mean that even when I'm sitting with my two children and my wife, I could rationalize, well, I'm not going to... Um, be looking at the phone. I'm not playing with it, but I'm going to put it here so that in case I get that phone call, I'm ready. How do we do that math for ourselves? And, and, is, and, and did you learn to, because you are conscious of the short, you know, you're conscious of the span of time we're here? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a fun question that I hadn't thought about until you asked it at all. And I spent, I have spent most of my professional life in that, literally thriving on response to emergencies and urgency. And, and Right, just that reaction. And it, it, it was almost enjoyable and addictive. And and I, I've, I've really been there. And that's kind of how I'm wired from a personality and talent standpoint. And so it, I don't think my diagnosis or threats to my mortality, they've affected a lot of other things and maybe the projects I've worked on, but they didn't affect the pull into that daily moment and environment they too much. They did not. Right, because one would right. think they would. You would think they would. And so I've had to try and create discipline to do that, where I know there are 
even to this day, there are people in my life who expect an instant response because they know they are they are important to me, and they really are. Yet, because I know they've trained me so well in that regard over the years, I've started to, there's, you know, there's great new functionality in Gmail where you can snooze something until 8 a.m. tomorrow morning or the next Monday. And I, I've started to do that deliberately just to set the right expectation in specific relationships that I'm not on call and on demand because I want to be present, whether it's with my kids or working on a writing project in that moment. So I, I've, that's a piece that I don't know has been that influenced by my health that I've had to work on. Well, perhaps influenced by having the kids in it, a way. It is that. It is in that way, yes. I only in the last two months started using um, the snooze on texts. Because, you know, you're in these mm-hmm. text – you end up in a bunch of text groups. Right. I realized there are some of these text groups. I'll still ch- – I'm neurotic enough that I'll check it anyway. Mm-hmm. So I don't need it to buzz. I turned it off so I don't get notified. I don't get a number on my phone. And so if a number shows up on my phone, it means it's my family or my partner at mm-hmm. work. And that's it. Otherwise, I'll see it really soon but not instantly. And even that is a huge – that micro change – giant change mm-hmm. to sleep, for instance. You know, there's, there's, I think to a degree, notifications are the root of a lot of issues around <laughs> attention in life, right? Just, yeah. it's almost, it sounds trivial, but if there, I think there are smart ways I'm learning to cue things up where you can cue emails and texts and calls that don't need to be responded to immediately because you know they're not emergencies into batches that allow you to spend more time focusing on things that matter. And the purpose in the midst of this, of and the purpose and the reason that, that these little changes matter is because, as you said, it's these little interactions aggregate somehow, right? Mm-hmm. The, and if you start getting in a downward spiral, the power of that accretes, and suddenly that's what you feel. And if you're constantly pulled and don't have time to be contemplative, to be with yourself, or to work on what's important, what happens? You end up feeling you didn't accomplish something, and then that turns into a negative feeling. Yeah, you get to the end of the day and you realize that all you did was respond to things flying at you and not, I mean, one thing that has changed my thinking because of my, because I have that tumor suppressor that's essentially shut off, is that I do wake up each day and say, how do I at least spend a little bit of time contributing to something that can grow after I'm gone? And that something can be a half hour reading to my daughter, or that something can be 200 words on a page that I'm writing. But is there something that's based on initiating for even a brief period of time instead of responding the entire day? I'm I'm pragmatic enough to realize that I could never will, and I bet most people never will, be able to spend a majority of their day initiating things. But if, if we could even get 10 or 20 percent, that's a big victory nowadays. Well, and it's what gives you that shot at meaning, right? Mm-hmm. Purpose. Uh, because you talk about that, I guess, happiness is a thin sort of an emotion, right? Right. Uh, or, and hard to hold on to. What, what people, I guess, um, identify in themselves as happiness, but that meaning can lead to a kind of joy. To joy. Uh, right. right. Is that accurate? Is that close to right? Yeah, that meaning can be as practical as happiness, where meaning can be something that's created in a moment, and it can be the accumulation of a bunch of little things that you do to help people you serve in your work each day. But that there's something about the implication of another person in meaningful acts where happiness can sometimes be isolated acts that don't do much for anyone outside of yourself. So there's something about the other orientation 
of meaningful acts, whether you're preparing food for another person or works of art or whatever it might be that gives the whole network a little right. boost. Right. And it's funny when you talk about husbands and, husbands and wives and when you talk about people, you know, wives and wives, uh, marriages or relationships, it is true a big sign of growth, right, is when you're interested in the other person's gratification, whether uh, it's physical or in any sort of interaction, the moment you really, for their sake, want the other person to get something great out of it. When, when that's a genuine feeling, not a manipulation, you somehow do walk away a bit lighter. You do. And that's, I mean, that's kind of the secret of it is that you grow and gain in the process. But I don't, I don't know if there's any better use of an hour of our time than to genuinely invest it in the growth of another human being. It's, you know, this is, I, I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but managers in the workplace are just, they're really being dismissed and kind of getting trashed in popular business literature nowadays where we're getting rid of managers, going to no managers, and we don't care about management. At its root, Management is about a deep investment in the growth and development of another person like parents and teachers do. And if we're not valuing that in businesses, we're going to have much bigger problems somewhere down the road. So. But isn't that – we don't reward it culturally. Within business culture, we don't reward the thing you're talking about or the fear is that people won't be rewarded for that. Correct. And I think it's getting I'm saying worse. that's what's really it, it, difficult it is. is that people don't – it takes a very special person to be willing to take that chance when they believe that the metrics on which they're going to be measured are much more binary and less human. It is, but it's when I've uh, a long time ago, I went around to interview some of the most admired leaders around the country as a part of a research project. And one of the things I learned was that those leaders really did, they knew who they were and they knew who they were not. And they were smart, tactically smart to surround themselves with people who could be a lot better at things than they ever could be. And that's a theme time and time again. And that's essentially allowing someone else's growth to elevate beyond yours in specific areas because that's what creates more cohesive groups and teams. Well, certainly the best generals. Right. Where, I mean, you read about the best generals in World War I and World War II mm -hmm. before that whole thing became so politicized. They were great at that. Right. At figuring out how to surround themselves with smarter better, more capable people. And that's the ideal we all have I, I, or ought to have. But again, so I wrote down here to say to you, to ask you, um, it occurred to me in thinking about the, this work that impulses and fears, essentially, you could boil a lot of this stuff down to that if we could control our impulses and our fears, we would be much better off. So what do you do to control them? Do you have a time at the beginning or end of your day where you think about when you didn't live up to this ideal, where an impulse got the better of you or a fear got the better of you so that you can anticipate it the next day? Like, what's your, your practice of recognizing and, and changing and looking out for these things? You know, that's the most applicable question that I, I essentially started with as a part of this latest book and documentary was, you know, I know I've studied all this stuff. I've read these great researchers we've been talking about, but yet how do I change a few behaviors that yeah. are beneficial in my own day-to-day -day life and for my family today. Yeah. And that's that's what a lot of it comes down to because I would argue this kind of daily well-being we create for ourselves and others is more important than how we reflect on our lives over three decades when we're nearing the cemetery or whatever. And a part of what I've learned there is that we need to figure out ways to structure our day 
to motivate ourselves to make the right short-term choices so they connect to these longer-term choices. And so and bear with me for a minute on this. I'll so do it, yeah. A, a practical way this plays out for me. So I, I mentioned that, I mean, I have this extraordinary risk of cancer, and I currently have cancer in my kidneys and pancreas and spine and all over. But and yet, have for a long time. And I, and I have for a while. But it still is not a really good motivator to skip the cheeseburger and milkshake that looked awesome at the airport today, right? So what does work for me is when I realize that if I want to be effective in my work this afternoon and I need to have energy for my kids who are both young at 6 o'clock in the evening, I need to have a light salad and some healthy things that don't give me a high-fat hangover and heartburn at 4 o'clock in the afternoon where I'm dozing off and falling asleep. And I I talked about this in the Eat, Move, Sleep book, I think, where there was a real pointed moment when I was working on the book where I went out to brunch and, you know, I don't have any more willpower than the next person. And so I ended up ordering the Eggs Benedict, comes with hollandaise sauce and fried potatoes and biscuits and gravy come with it. I just ate everything. And on a beautiful Sunday afternoon in the fall in D.C., my daughter was pulling on my sleeve and saying, Dad, will you take my brother and I to the park? And I could not be a good dad that afternoon because I made crummy decisions in the middle of the day. And for me, connecting those short-term incentives with being a better dad or if I've got a presentation at 10 o'clock in the morning knowing I need to go work out and get a good night's sleep and have a healthy breakfast, those are those make it a lot easier to make better choices tomorrow so morning. So do you make lists of that stuff? The, do you go through a practice of of once you realize – so you realize mm-hmm. that. You made that distinction, as Tony Robbins would say. Like right. you made that distinction for yourself. So we can all make that distinction. Most of us then have these memories, though, that just like, I can have a great memory and remember everything I ever read, but forget that the pizza I ate yesterday made me feel bad and I had to go to sleep. So the next day, I might just order it again. How do we remind ourselves? How do we keep ourselves aware that we're not depriving ourselves, we're giving ourselves like a gift? Mm-hmm. For You know, for some people, it helps to write that down and to make journals of that to really build habits. But I, I would suspect a majority of us it's really we do we do have more willpower early on in the day. And so if we can get a good night's sleep and make sleep. I mean, one of the things I do, I, I mean I, I kind of make have automated breakfast. So I either put a bunch of spinach and blueberries and flax milk in a blender and blend it up at home, or when I'm on the road I do like an egg white omelet with vegetables. So I have my standard orders that I don't have to it's it's kinda of like the president wearing the same yeah, suit. Zuckerberg every day. I was gonna say Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg right. using his uh, So if you if you kinda of lower that cognitive load early on in the day and then I always have a big salad for lunch, then by the time the real difficult choices roll around at five or six o'clock and your willpower has been depleted it's a little easier to make better choices. And you've already loaded up your day with pretty good choices that gave you energy at 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So, so you're not already in just a, a bad place. Right. So I, I do think there's also something about front-end loading and sequencing each day so that ideally you get to the end of the day in a much better state and you have a better chance at a good night's sleep. Which one night. of your books do you think uh, covers the, this stuff the best? Uh, Eat, Move, Sleep gets real tactical. And I was trying to boil down some of the essential shortcuts around those three areas that people can plug in in order to change those behaviors on a momentary basis. We're going to take a sec here to uh, hear from our sponsor. Amazon's original series, Bosch, returns for an all-new season. Based on Michael Connelly's best-selling novels, by the way, if you don't know the Bosch novels, read the Bosch novels. They're spectacular. Harry Bosch, the tenacious LAPD homicide detective, is back on the job after an involuntary leave of absence. His first case back may prove his biggest challenge yet. 
as he follows a dangerous trail of corruption and collusion. One that uncovers the dark side of the police department and threatens Bosch's relentless pursuit of truth. Stream the new season of Bosch now on Amazon Prime Video and listen to the companion podcast, A Fine Mist of Blood, on SoundCloud or Stitcher. You know, you said something about um, about not wanting to get in a place where you don't have these little decisions so that you can be a better parent, essentially, a better uh, to the people around you. And, you know, when I said at the top of this that, you know, obviously I, I admire you uh, and, and you're, I really like your work a lot. Uh, I think it's so useful and I, I find you so inspiring um, because I think it, were I to face that diagnosis when you did and had to live, I think um, I, I might have just cashed it all in. Uh, so... I do find it amazing that, and, and heroic, because I, I only think people are heroic when they do for others, but that you've taken this and turned into something for others. But, you know, as I said, the way that I came into contact with you was through StrengthsFinder, and, and my life turned for the better when I was 30. Uh, some of the people who listen to the show a lot know the story, and I'll tell it really quickly to you, which is that I, was not a, I wasn't writing, I wasn't living a creative life. My son was born, and it was our, our first child. And I realized that, that to me, if I wanted to be uh, the kind of father who would tell his, his children that they should go after whatever they were passionate about, then I would have to go after what I was passionate about. Because it occurred to me that if, if you have a true passion for something, a truly unanswered call, and you don't try to achieve it, that that turns toxic too, and that that toxicity spreads. And that you take on a sense, a feeling of, of failure, of that you, when you shut something like that down, it too has a chemical r- reaction. And because death turns, you know, when something dies, it, it spreads toxicity. But it seems I've read, uh, not only in the books, but I've heard you interviewed and talk about how this idea of chasing passion can be more harmful than helpful. Now, I didn't quit my job. I just found two hours in the day. Um, I got up earlier. I kept working. I knew I had responsibilities, but I, I needed to chase this thing. Now, for me, it worked out. And then I've seen many people for whom it's worked out. I give them the artist's way. They crack something open in themselves, and they're able to change. Can you talk a little bit about that or what I'm misunderstanding about about your work in, the, in that area? Yeah, and I appreciate you asking that because I, I think a lot of times some of the work around strengths in particular is interpreted as as uh, essentially saying to just focus on your strengths and ignore your weaknesses and don't worry about things you're not as good at or explore other areas. And I think that's that would be naive and reckless, just to, to be real clear about that. Um, and in the most recent book, I, I did take to task a little bit the the direct advice around just saying follow your passion, right? Because yeah. it's if you go into the – there's an interesting background, I think, why this occurred. If you go into the literature – on uh, how organizations hire people for the right jobs. That's where a lot of the strengths work started. And over the last three, four decades, what companies have learned is there are a few things that predict future job performance very well. One of those things is cognitive ability or general mental ability, just intelligence as we know it. But yet companies are now often hesitant to do that because it um, discriminates a lot against protected classes and so forth. So they moved away from general mental ability. The other thing that well, they, it's the it's the way that that stuff's measured. It's the way it's measured. It's the way Correct. it's measured that makes it uh, makes it perhaps unfair. It's right. that it's measured. Nobody's found an actual true objective measure of intellect. 
Right. I'm saying so, that's the reason that that is a difficult metric. Correct. It's a difficult metric. And when you're hiring people into frontline roles in retail, for example, um, to be able to perform some basic tasks correlates to job sure. outcomes, basically. And so there's that. And another element is, do you have the right kind of natural talents and predispositions to be really good at winning over an irate customer or selling a medical device, whatever it might be? So I, I've done a lot of work in that area over the years. There's this third area that psychologists and organizations are called IO psychologists were very cynical about were just interests and what people are actually interested in like doing, their passions kind of. And what I learned as I got into this research is the reason they didn't follow that path in testing people and matching them to jobs is primarily because it didn't predict company outcomes that well. The psychologists, interestingly, never looked at or studied whether it mattered to the person's well-being or how happy the person was. Right. And when you look at that, it matters a lot. And so I, I my opinion right, has come yeah, around quite ah, a bit. So okay. that's that's where, I, where I'm going with it. Is I'm that glad to hear this. It's yeah. That if you're saying, in my opinion, right now, companies primarily look at, are we getting enough out of the people who we've hired and offer a paycheck to? And they're not looking at, are, are the workers' lives better off because they're part of this organization? If you have a more reciprocal, holistic relationship between people and employers, you do need to ask that question. Is this person following their interests and are they passionate about what they're doing every day? Because it matters just as much as whether they're using their strengths for their well-being. Do you see what I mean? Well, yeah. And, so, well, so we've and, got... and by your theory that actually the well-being, how they feel, whether they feel like their work's giving them meaning, will actually make them better contributors, less toxic to the environment, won't it? It will. And I think what, I'm, what I've learned from just kind of listening to your own story, um, not only now but before, is that it's, you need to be, have opportunities and be exposed to things that allow you to find that intersection between your interests or passions and what people value or purchase or want or need out there in the world, right? And so there's, there's kind of all, you need multiple exposures in order to find that in many cases. And, you know, I read a, a piece of academic research just last week showing that people who have had something they're really passionate about that they never pursued or followed are actually more miserable than people who didn't have a passion in the first place. That's what, yes. So we've got, we, yes, boy, that's we, exactly what I'm talking we, about. I think we need to spend a lot of time in the future thinking about how do you get people lined up with passions and interests that really fit who they are. And there's there's been just nowhere near as much work as there should be on it because of the kind of organizational approach to hiring, in my opinion. Right. So that it, right, the top down sort of serving the 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 industrial economy in a Correct. certain way um, as a driver. But because your books are not just to businesses, they're to you, they're, you know, your, your books are for a commercial, the commercial market, and you write in such a clean, easy to read style, despite being uh, having such an academic background, that I think the way the message got reduced, that, you know, was it's kind of not worth following your 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 passions because what if your uh, skill set doesn't match up with them, you're going to end up sad. And and I think that what I learned as I started to get into this, and I think I still need to do a lot more research and work on this in the future, is that. There are kind of three elements that all tie together. You've got your natural talents or what you're naturally good at. If you're naturally more competitive, or you're naturally more empathetic, whatever. Um, and then you've got what you're interested and passionate about over here. And those are both really important for the person. And so you've got to bring those two things together ideally, but then also triangulate that with what the world needs and values. Because yeah. if you're really interested in 
um, recreational golfing and you're really good at it, but nobody else wants to pay to watch you golf, that's that's a problem professionally in the way all these things line up, right? So we've we've got to find a way yes. to bring the the demand side of the equation in with the supply of your passions and talents. Though, as, well. as you, I love that example because, as I, I'm sure in your travels you have, I have absolutely met people who are just so happy that they're working at the golf shop or at the ski shack mm-hmm. because it puts them near this thing that they love and allows them to do it. And even if that means, uh, uh, you know, let's say this woman loves golf. And boy, is she good at accounting. But it's possible she'll be happier, even if she's earning eighty-five grand a year uh, as an accountant or $150,000 a year as an accountant. Maybe she'd be happier and actually feel her life had more meaning, earning $45,000 a year, basically living at a golf, living near the golf course, uh, selling tea times in the mornings, and then helping people with their swings in the afternoon. Absolutely. Yeah, I think as long as you can make some connection to how it... Um, contributes to the energy you have or meaning for somebody else in the work there. That's so much more important. If you really step back and look at national data sets or people who have been studied over time here in the States, it's really clear to me that you don't have to make an extraordinary amount of money to have a lot of great days lined up in a row. If if you want to evaluate your life really well over 30 or 40 years, that always brings more of a financial connotation into it. But in the Gallup data set I looked at in from the year of 2013, four of the five happiest countries on a daily basis in the world were in the bottom half on GDP per capita, where when you look at these old traditional measures of uh, life satisfaction over decades, you'd always have the Scandinavian countries, Sweden and Denmark and the like, at the top of those lists. So that, that's that been encouraging to me because it means that income is— Well, this relative, there's a relative the quality to it. it. I've read uh, right. uh, those, uh, a lot of that stuff, too. Right. And, yeah, the, the, the sort of your relative wealth can have an impact uh, on your happiness. But if everybody can get to a certain place of stasis, then uh, you can be okay and—, and, and uh, not feel like you're behind. Correct. Yeah, and then there's 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 a lot of stress that's cleaned out uh, in the U.S., for example, beneath the below. Once you get to fifty five thousand of household income, that's not obviously New York, San Francisco, but across the states, the, most of the m- mitigation of stress flattens out on a curve. So you do. There are some real practical reasons how money alleviates stress and buys well-being up to those levels. Yeah, 75, I think you wrote, or I've read in a bunch of places, like $70,000 or something. Yeah, that's where where happiness starts to flatten out and you don't see much statistical effect. Stress is down at the 45, 55 range in the U.S. So I I guess I think about this as it, and and and, and perhaps it's not fair because I'm always thinking about this stuff from the point of view of the arts, you know, and... Mm -hmm. In you know when I'm talking about passion and all that stuff, I'm talking about because pe- I the, the people who approach me about this stuff are often people who want to do something in the arts, and for all artists, I, I've said this before, but the the line between being delusional and being an artist is incredibly thin, and you don't know, right? You one doesn't know until the world somehow lets that person know, and it may take a very long time, right? I'm I'm not only you know it's not only the Van Gogh example. I mean there are many, many examples of people whose work was disregarded or the right it, within their m- moment as a, a young artist, it, what they were doing wasn't in tune with what the times uh, wanted. But it turned out that the work had tremendous value. Have you given any thought to, to how people should do that math for themselves and how they can figure out? I'm asked this all the time by people, you know, how do I know if I, 
I can do it now. I I I loved doing stand up. I, I I wasn't great at it. I but I it was an artistic impulse. I love writing songs. I'm not great at that. It turned out the outlet that worked for me was any time I could do something that involved prose writing and taking pictures of it or whatever. But I had to like kind of try a bunch of this stuff to figure it out. How do we how do we know if we're crazy or where or we have a chance at it? And and does it matter? I think it matters a lot. Um and we've got to find a better way to build process or a method for people to have multiple exposures to things that might stimulate that creative instinct. Do you see what I mean? We, the, right now, yes. it, almost the opposite occurs if you look at how kids are raised in our system and what goes on in college. One of the things I was frightened by when I was looking at this, uh, when I was read the book, Are You Fully Charged?, I think, is that a long-term uh, German longitudinal panel, they looked at fathers and sons because um, that was the primary workforce in Germany in the 60s, 70s. And more than 50% of young men went to work for work in the same industry and about as many went to work for the same company as their, as their fathers, dads as their dads so it's it's that specific even let alone where i mean i yeah. i'm sure like most people i uh out of, the, out of my 10 friends who close friends who went to law school there's one who's still doing it and really enjoys it and probably should have been a lawyer right but yet there's the societal pressures from what your parents did to the financial pressures of law school versus med school versus business school in um, especially at kind of elite colleges around the United States. It's it's a real problem because to a degree, it's about minimizing exposure to potential passions and creative ventures instead of maximizing. It's interesting because even right. in, especially in elite institutions, mm-hmm. you can see that my son goes to one of those super, super elite universities. And we were talking yesterday and he was saying, I could see leaving and going and working on a campaign because I think this really matters, this election and all this stuff. And even though I really believe in all of that stuff, I had the moment of fear of, well, well, well if you get off that train, what happens if you get you know, All I do my whole life is tell people, get off that train. And uh, immediately, I, 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 now I did take the pause and I said all the things that I should have said. But for a moment, you know, you can feel this panic of, um, well, wait, 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 wait you, 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 you got yourself there. You, you're supposed to put one foot in front of the other as opposed to stepping back and going, wait, he, he got himself there. He's fine. He has to go on his path. And um, it's not like he's telling me he wants to leave and start, you know, uh, shooting up heroin. He's saying he might want to do what he thinks is really good for our country. But still, we panic sometimes. We do. And it's, you know, it's, I I think a lot of the panic, I I spent some time with uh, groups of undergrads and graduates in the last year of teaching. And they're, they're kind of, even just in their own mind, they're torn between two things. They don't want to end up in that job like their father or grandfather who was miserable for 30 years that they hated, but they also don't want to be living at home at 32 like their older brother, right? And so there's a, there's yeah, a continuum There's a continuum there where we've got to help people entering the workforce and looking for jobs to see how Amy Vrznevsky, who is in the documentary, documentary, talks about how you kind of progress from a job to a career to a calling and has done some great work on how that occurs and that it can be a continuum of exploration. You don't have to find your dream job in your first crack at it out of college. But the goal is just that you're exploring all the way to the point where you are finished working. And maybe if you do find that thing, you don't ever finish working. You die while you're still doing what you love, which is the ideal scenario based on everything I've looked at. Well, there, I think that's a great place to leave it, that the goal is to die while doing something that you love. And obviously, you've that's been a North Star for you of your whole life, right? 
Absolutely. Well, um, did we cover everything that you wanted to cover? Did we? Uh, is there anything you think we've left out that we should bring up? It's been a fun conversation that's already taken my mind and future work in a few directions. Great. Um, thank you so much. I know your, your time is uh, scarce here in New York, so I really appreciate you doing this. Um, Tom's a great Twitter follow, too. He doesn't tweet a lot, but when he does, it's uh, usually a link to something fascinating, compelling, worth spending your time on. You can find him at, what is Tom C? Tom C. Rath. Tom C. Rath. I'm at Brian Koppelman. Um, I tweet way too much about nothing. Uh, and I'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Carrie Russell. I play the KGB spy Elizabeth Jennings on The Americans. It's more about getting people to trust you, to help them understand that you want the same thing that they want, which is to make the world a safer place for everyone. Tune into The Americans Insider Podcast each week after you watch the show for conversations with actors, producers, directors, and even an actual FBI counterintelligence agent. Search for the Americans podcast from Slate, wherever you get your podcasts.